Hello, my name is Cheryl Byers, and I'm the Vice President for Institutional Partnerships here at Advara. And today, I'm joined by Dr. John Stewart. Hello as well. My name is Dr. John Stewart, and I am the Deputy Director of the University of Illinois Cancer Center. I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Stewart for the second episode of Advara in Conversations With. It's really a pleasure to team up with a former colleague and a friend to hold an important discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion in cancer research, as well as within the clinical research ecosystem as a whole. Let's go. I am equally excited to be joining you for this discussion. So Dr. Stewart, what does it mean when we say we're talking about diversity in cancer research? So limited diversity in cancer research uh, reduces output and yields applications that do not speak to the complexity of cancer and its impact on minority populations. I would think that the diversity of participation in underserved populations in clinical trials is a critical link between scientific innovation and improvements in healthcare delivery and health outcomes. Unfortunately, these populations often do not participate in clinical trials due to a number of factors, and this decreases the diversity and applicability of the findings for clinical trials. And so some of the primary factors are distrust of the medical system, lack of awareness of clinical trials among patients and physicians, limited opportunities to participate, inadequate health insurance, which we will delve into a little later during our discussion, and the logistical burdens of trial participation. And these burdens include cost, transportation, and study duration. And could you briefly touch on the differences between diversity, equity, and inclusion, which, by the way, I may shorten at times to DEI just for brevity, but if you could briefly touch on the differences between diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why these nuances are important to efforts to improve DEI in cancer research. Sure. So I think now is a great time for us to really dig deeply and establish shared understandings of what these terms mean so that we're able to hold these terms as separate concepts and understand how they interact and subsequently be able to have clear goals and strategies around them. Diversity is actually the presence of differences within a given setting, including diversity of identities like race and gender, and in some cases, ethnicity, religion, nationality, or sexual orientation. In fact, these identities have received systematic discriminatory treatment and created advantages, disadvantages, and barriers to opportunity and resources. So when we think about the term inclusion, it is about people with different identities feeling valued, leveraged, and welcomed within a given setting. With this in mind, diversity does not necessarily equal inclusion. And to quote Werner Myers, a a leader in diversity, diversity is being asked to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. So for example, you can have a diverse study team that does not mean that every participant feels welcomed or is valued, is giving opportunities for advancement or gets clear mentorship and sponsorship. By the same token, you can have a diverse patient population, but not every study participant feels respected or included in projects that advance science. Equity, on the other hand, is an approach that ensures everyone has access to the same opportunities to be in clinical trials or for members of the research team. So equity recognizes that advantages and barriers exist and that as a result, we all don't start from the same place. Equity is a process that begins by acknowledging that we are at an unequal starting place And equity makes a commitment to correct and address this imbalance. And I believe that conversations such as the ones that we will be having today are important starting steps. 
that the real work begins with actions targeting the root causes of inequities. Great. And something you and I have spoken about previously um, is mistrust of individuals, specifically minority populations in the medical system. And you you mentioned it sort of in your in your intro a few minutes ago. But why is mistrust in the medical system something we have to address as part of the discussion? Right. So the medical establishment has a long history of uh, mistreating Black Americans from uh, experiments on enslaved people to forced sterilizations of Black women and the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study that withheld treatment from hundreds of Black men for decades to let doctors track the course of the disease. And I think that it is these experiences that actually lay the foundation for the findings from an October 2020 poll that was produced by the Kaiser Family Foundation and the undefeated that found that seven of 10 Black Americans say that they are treated unfairly by the health system, and 55% say that they distrust it. And so people who distrust the medical establishment are less likely to follow medical advice or even seek medical treatment. They're less likely to participate in complex treatment trials or participate in clinical trials. So what can we do to rebuild the trust in the medical system? I think that rebuilding trust actually requires a presence and an involvement in the community. I like to call this community sweat equity, right? It it takes a lot of time. It takes honest engagement and it takes honest follow through in order to rebuild the trust uh, so that people see that you are genuinely um, concerned about health issues that occur in the communities. Now, the other part of it, too, is that it is really hard to distrust study teams that look like the community. So that speaks to the need of having a diverse study pipeline or clinical research pipeline that reflects the community. Can you talk a little about the kinds of actions or trends that we need to evaluate to really address diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical research, specifically cancer research? Sure. So I think that there are uh, three trends that we really need to uh, track moving forward, but we need to uh, delve into the mistrust of the medical system that we talked about before. We need to think about participatory patterns in clinical trials, and then we need to think about the pipeline. So let's further our conversation around the mistrust of uh, the medical system in certain communities. So just out of the gate, um, healthcare systems need to provide excellent care with outstanding patient experience every time. And so just being good enough is not good enough. We need to hold ourselves to very high standards so that patients feel valued when they um, engage in the health system. Uh, Secondly, uh, as I mentioned before, um, health systems need to have a presence in the community. Um, I think back to my example of when I was a medical student and the year must have been 1993 or 1994 when we were doing a health fair. And one of the um, members of the community said, you know, this is great, but why don't you come see us when you need something, right? And so as I thought about that, that really helped uh, mold my thinking and my activities around having a community presence so that we can address issues that, although um, initially look like they uh, reside outside of cancer, they actually impact the community in terms of ultimately coming to the health system and at sometimes might even need involvement with the care network. And then thirdly, we have to partner with the community to build relationships that facilitate trust in the organization. So I think back 
on a group that I'm actually one of the principal investigators on that's uh, called Chicago Check, which is Chicago Cancer Health Equity Consortium, which is a partnership between the University of Illinois Chicago, Northwestern University, and Northeast Illinois University, in which we actually have a community advisory board that has input not only into the research that we do, but also into some of the care practices or practices that we have and interactions with the community. And we've actually had some extraordinarily positive movement in the healthcare systems based upon interactions that we've had with our community advisory board. Now, the second thing that we really need to think about as we track DEI and cancer research is understanding participatory patterns. But I would like to draw the audience's attention to uh, some work that I did with Dr. Lola Fayanju, um, who is uh, currently at Duke, on participatory patterns in surgical oncology trials. And so just by way of background, you know, Fisher um, and their team demonstrated that we have an equity problem in clinical trial participation and that African-American and Latinx patients are actually overrepresented in phase one clinical trials while they're underrepresented in phase two trials. So if you think about that, you know, phase one trials are safety and dosing trials, and there's no primary endpoint around treatment. Phase three trials have primary endpoints around efficacy of treatment. And so the differences in participation actually speak to an inequity in patients who do actually go on to clinical trials. And I think that that's a big problem. But if we think about the work that uh, Dr. Fianju published um, in December of 2019, um, around surgical uh, participation in surgical oncology trials for breast cancer, uh, we found that Black and Hispanic patients were 15 to 20% less likely to be involved in trials than white patients. And if you think about the larger cooperative group trials around breast that had more than 1,000 slots per year, high-income Latinx and Black patients were about 45 and 35% less likely to participate in those trials than high-income whites. And so if you take these data together, uh, you know, it demonstrates that it's not necessarily about income equaling high access to trials equaling high participation, but it's a little bit more complex than that, right? And so as we move forward, we have to prospectively evaluate participatory patterns that speak to health literacy, that speak to interaction with the healthcare community, but also speak to the patient experience and prepping patients and putting um, support services around set patients to participate in trials. And then we also need to really understand what the perception is of these high income uh, underrepresented minority patients are that lead to uh, the decision to participate or not participate in these trials. That's really interesting. I, I like that you guys took a, a deeper dive into, you know, specifically breast cancer patients and, and the, the racial disparities there. So that's, that's really interesting. So recently, the Food and Drug Administration released some guidance on enhancing diversity in clinical trials and recommended that sponsors take steps to reduce participant burden, such as increasing visit windows and reducing the frequency of visits to specific sites. The FDA also mentioned greater use of electronic communication, such as emails or phone calls for visits. What other types of interventions are important to improving clinical trial enrollment and uh, retention? 
So I would say that let's think about the way that clinical trials are actually created. Typically, these clinical trials are created by groups that do not include community participants. And so it is awfully important for us to have the patient voice and the community voice in the design of these trials. The other thing that I think needs to be addressed with respect to the design of the trials is to reevaluate exclusion and inclusion criteria. So there have been a plethora of data, and, and you know these data were first reported by Dr. Lucille Adams-Campbell from uh, the Georgetown uh, University Lombardi Cancer Center that uh, suggested that many times um, African-American patients are excluded from clinical trial participation due to comorbid conditions. To be honest, the vast majority of patients in society have comorbid conditions, and so we need to reevaluate the exclusion of these patients from clinical trials. I think that understanding that the population of the United States is changing is an important concept that we need to embrace as we consider diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical trials. Um, And having said that is that we're having increased numbers of patients being uh, either bilingual or multilingual And having patient navigators with those skills is an important approach to increasing participation in clinical trials. Uh, We do know that the clinical trial consent process needs to uh, be culturally sensitive and and linguistically appropriate. And so having patient navigators that bridge that language difference is important. Great. Thank you. So now I want to get into one of my favorite topics, which is policy change. Mm -hmm. Why is policy change essential to creating actionable change as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical trials? So if we think about disparities in the socioecologic framework, the top of that framework is that of policy, because changing policy is really our chance to uh, change the activities of multiple stakeholders at one time. And you know, there are two important policy changes that have occurred within the past year around clinical trial participation. The first one was the uh, Clinical Treatment Act of 2020 that was introduced by uh, Senator Richard Burr from my uh, home state of North Carolina and Ben Cardin. Prior to this legislation, uh, Medicaid was the only major insurance provider that did not cover routine costs associated with participation in clinical trials. And actually, coverage for clinical trials. Uh, was already assured for uh, Medicare beneficiaries and for patients with private health insurance. And so at the time, 15 states in Washington, D.C. actually required Medicaid programs to cover costs that were associated with participation in clinical trials. Yet there were still as many as about 41 million Americans who were insured through Medicaid who did not have this crucial coverage that they needed. This legislation actually required that all state Medicaid programs cover routine care costs for individuals participating in clinical trials for serious or life-threatening conditions, including cancer. The second significant piece of legislation is actually the uh, Henrietta Lacks um, Enhancing Cancer Research Act of 2020. And so this legislation uh, ensured that all patients, especially those from communities of color, are fairly represented in clinical trials and ultimately receive the treatments that they deserve. So this act actually requires that the Government Accountability Office, or the GAO, 
to complete a study that reviews how federal agencies address barriers to participating in federally funded cancer trials by individuals from underrepresented populations. And I think that this review will open up opportunities for us to have further funded considerations around these important issues. That's terrific. And and I, I completely agree with you. I'm very excited about these these two policy changes. And, and I think it's going to just be phenomenal for, for clinical trials in general, but um, certainly for participants that were previously mis- underrepresented um, in clinical trials. Let's shift a little bit um, while we're talking policy, but, but shift it a little to uh, talking about cancer centers specifically. Um, the National Cancer Institute expects cancer centers to engage communities within their catchment area or the geographical area from which hospitals actually receive patients. This is to decrease their cancer burden, specifically among minority and underrepresented populations. Why is it important for cancer centers to consider this when they are writing their cancer center support grants? And how is this integral to this discussion that we're having today? Right. So I think that NCI-designated cancer centers must first and foremost impact the health of their catchment area. I mean, that's just the bottom line of what NCI-designated centers need to do. And so I view this kind of as catchment relative research. And at the University of Illinois, we've actually written about the paradigm in which we have community to bench top. In other words, the needs of the community should inform the majority of the research that is supported by the cancer center. Why is this important? Because it meets the needs of the constituents um, and it helps to improve the health and has a significant impact on the surrounding communities of the cancer centers. And this is really challenging though for some cancer centers. So could you suggest some efforts that they can take to enhance their minority recruitment? Sure. So the first step toward this is actually creating a community advisory board, such as the one that we have in Chicago Check. Because again, this gives the community a seat at the table, number one. Number two is is that uh, we should actually have community partners involved in the design and conduct of clinical research. Uh, Because again, it gives them a seat, A, it gives them a seat at the table, but B, it also helps uh, the research team understand potential barriers from a patient standpoint that might impact enrollment, right? And so it's it's better to figure out those obstacles early in the process rather than later when you're trying to figure out why you're not reaching your accrual goals. The third piece, as I mentioned before, is to have a strong pipeline that includes members of the community. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know, you know, it takes a really long time to establish these relationships with community partners. You know, this isn't something that can be done over the course of, you know, six months or a year. So it really takes someone who's dedicated to putting in that time and effort, that sweat equity that you talked about earlier. You want to always engage those community partners and really establish those robust relationships. And providing that information back to the participants is certainly an important step. So, Dr. Stewart, when we last spoke, you talked about your framework of diversity 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. And I found it very fascinating. And I was hoping you could tell our listeners a little more about this and how diversity 3.0 relates to policy. So, you know, this concept, this framework was actually popularized by IBM and, and Dr. Mark Neve when he was at the um, Association of American Medical Colleges published on this diversity framework. 
So Diversity 1.0 included efforts at removing social and legal barriers to access and equity with institutional excellence. Diversity 2.0 actually kept diversity on the periphery, but it raised awareness about how increasing diversity benefits everyone and allows for excellence and diversity that exist as parallel lens. And so Diversity 3.0 is actually um, an emerging thought that reflects a growing understanding of diversity's broader relevance to institutions and systems. This includes policies aimed at enhancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical trials in the the, uh, training pipeline. It also includes uh, policies such as the Clinical Treatment Act that we spoke about earlier, as well as the Henrietta Lacks Act. And so having these policies that also include monitoring funding for pipeline programs is going to be critical because as we move forward, we need to uh, consider legislation that will bridge the digital divide. And I know the FDA's guidance spoke about having electronic communications. And I think that there's a real risk of the digital divide actually um, exacerbating inequities in clinical trial participation due to an increasing reliance on on electronic communication. And so the policy really needs to... um, really needs to help us understand how we move forward um, when in the in the role of diversity 3.0. Terrific. And I, I think that's a good transition to talking about what the future is going to hold for uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical research. So with that, what do you think that the future does hold for DEI and oncology research specifically, but also just for clinical research as a whole? Right. So I think that the emerging um, research around participation in clinical trials and oncology research and the continued emergence of value-based oncology has actually set the stage for the future. And so when we think about what we have to do to move forward, I think that one, we have to, uh, to have more funding to support research that seeks to understand the structural barriers to clinical trial participation. I think, two, we need to have um, broad, concerted efforts to enhance community engagement. Um, I think that having a couple of institutions do it really well is um, okay. But if we think about the Cancer Center support grants that are coming from the National Cancer Institute, is that community outreach and engagement are extremely important parts of those cancer center support grants. And in fact, community outreach and engagement needs to extend across the programs that are, that are included in those CCSGs in order to um, really impact the health of the community. And I think finally, we really need to think about how we improve um, participation of underrepresented minorities and biorepositories. Um, if we think back to the Cancer Genome Atlas project, I think that that project was slowed um, due to the uh, lack of specimens from minority patients. And so as we think about um, moving forward, we have to understand how we increase the participation of all populations in biorepositories and making sure that those specimens are well annotated and that we're able to derive the maximal scientific knowledge um, from the specimens that are in the biorepositories. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think sometimes when we we think about clinical research, you know, we're not thinking about biorepositories. And so that's that's excellent. I'm I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I, I hope I don't throw you a curveball with this question, but I've been an administrator of clinical research for a very long time. So I don't have direct patient contact. I don't have direct participant contact. So I'm not talking you know, to individuals within the community or even individuals that are recruited into clinical trials very often. So what can administrators do to support the clinical research teams and and clinical research investigators? You know, I, I think administrators are in a position to ask the hard questions. And so if a person brings to you a clinical trial and you review it and you don't think that it is set up to succeed, then I believe that it is within your purview to ask the question, Right to ask the question around accrual goals, to ask the questions around clinical operations that are required to get a patient on the trial. And I I firmly believe that it's it's gonna take efforts from all fronts in clinical trials, not necessarily just the sponsor or not necessarily the investigator, but also the administrators to make sure that everyone is on the same page moving forward. That's great. Yes, I've I've always taken the it takes a village approach to clinical research. So um, so that's that's a great answer and and very supportive of that theory. Dr. Stewart, I just want to say thank you for having this conversation with me. It's been really enlightening and I very much appreciate your time. I also want to extend a thank you to all of those who are listening today. And did you have any other parting thoughts before we wrap up our podcast today? Cheryl, it's been a pleasure. And it's candid conversations like these that are integral to DEI efforts that we've discussed today. And I hope uh, sometime soon we can have a conversation in person. So thank you so much. Thank you. I, I hope the same. And with that, we conclude the second episode of Advara in Conversations with. If you enjoyed today's discussion, follow Advara on our social media channels or on advara.com for our next episode. 